What do you want to do tonight? How's about we head to Russia, play some chess, go back to L.A., see some stand-up, and ultimately crash into the Warner Brothers lot of a couple of 25-year-old cartoons. Oh, and try to take over the world. Welcome to Channel 8 and a Half. Hello and welcome to Channel 8 and a Half, a podcast about film, television, and pop culture. My name is Andrew Hanna. My name is Joe Galina. We hope you had a great Thanksgiving, and this week is a Watchlist episode, so Joe, what are we watching this week? We're doing an av- array of things this week, Andrew. We're doing one old thing, we're doing one new thing, and we're doing one thing that's come back after a while. The new Animaniacs on Hulu just came out. It's a reboot of the 90s show. We're going to move into Kevin Hart's new stand-up special, and then we're going to finish off with our review of The Queen's Gambit, which is the new Netflix show that came out recently. We wanted to give people some time to finish it. Let's start off with Animaniacs. Let me ask you this first. Did you watch Animaniacs as a kid? I did. I did. I loved Animaniacs as a kid. Okay, so did I. So we're starting off on equal planes, just like most people our age, at the risk of sounding like a BuzzFeed article, we are kids of the 90s. Well, they did say we are a key demographic, so. <laughs> I'm gl- Okay, you caught that too. Yeah. <laughs> because if there's ever something to describe this show, it's really trying to, A, hold on to the 90s, hold on to that nostalgia, and B, be meta. Yeah. I don't want to bury the lead here. It kind of bothered me. I know, I know. I remember you mentioning that before I got a chance to watch it, but I, this is my type of humor and I really enjoyed it just from the start with the Jurassic Park opening. I thought that that was so perfect. The Jurassic Park opening was brilliant. It was a brilliant way to open the show. And from there, it leans heavily into the fact that, hey, we're the same, but we're different. But we're still the same, so don't worry. Don't be afraid. I feel like Animaniacs being Animaniacs, they had to be this meta because they were always somewhat meta to an extent. Being on the Warner Brothers studio lot in and of itself is Is meta. meta, It is. You know, the fact that they are cartoon characters that live on the film studio lot, it's weird. And that's not something you'd ever think would work. Well, and their names are the Warner Brothers and... The Warner Sister Dot. Which is the Dot and Warner Bros. But it was always referencing current events and things like that. So, I mean, just right off the bat, you had Bill Clinton playing the saxophone on Mm -hmm. top of the tower. And I didn't mind it. I wonder... I've only watched two episodes of it because I didn't have time to watch the entire season. Did you watch the entire season? I watched the entire season. Does it sustain throughout? Uh, It does. It sustains the entire time. And Mm -hmm. I think that's to its detriment because it felt to me too much like it was trying to just reference the fact that, hey, we're a 90s cartoon and not trying something new. For anybody who hasn't seen the show or seen it all the way through even, a lot of the characters from the original cartoon, they don't bring back. They don't bring back the good feathers. They don't bring back the squirrel, but they only bring back Pinky and the Brain. That's the only other cartoon that they bring back. And I think the Pinky and the Brain bits work the best because it's trying to create new stories within the 2000 and now 20s. Yeah. You know, the first episode of Pinky and the Brain is the same thing. You know, they're trying to take over the world. What are we going to do tonight, Pinky? Brain tries to take over the world using a cute animal video that he tries to make go viral, which has a hypnotic subliminal message inside of it. Like a filter. Exactly. To brainwash everybody. That's great because it's, oh, okay, you're taking the new technology. You're taking what is existing in today's world and how would they take over the world? They would do it via the internet. Yeah. Fantastic. Do they lean a little bit too heavily into 
well, what is this social commentary? A little bit newfangled (laughs) technology and all that. Maybe, maybe for some, you know, your mileage may vary. I thought they did try a little bit too hard. And I thought that the tone of this show was a little bit more caustic than the original 90s one. It felt more mean spirited as opposed to, as opposed to zany, in my opinion. I, you know, I wish I could have watched the old ones because I can't even compare because I haven't seen an episode of Animaniacs in probably two decades. I watched a so lot. Of, I, I watched a lot of the old stuff also in preparation yeah. for this. And a lot of it isn't politically correct. So it would not hold up to today's standards. You know, they got rid of one of the, very, the most famous lines, the hello nurse line, and they got rid of that character. When, mm-hmm. you know, the nurse would, she's wearing a very skimpy outfit and she's blonde and Wacko and Yakko go, hello, nurse. And Dot also gets in on that too. They remove that. And a lot of the more risque sex related jokes aren't in this. It's more. Well, I mean. Meta commentary <laughs> jokes in, in the new What's one. his name uh, from the Odyssey had pubic hair coming out of his. Yeah, a little, a lot of political stuff. They also did political stuff in the original though, too. But I also I think, think the, the monoculture back then was a lot easier to satirize things, whether it be political or Hollywood stuff. Yeah. Now, whenever you do political stuff, maybe I maybe I misremember also. I wasn't an adult in the 90s. Otherwise, it would be strange. I don't know what the reaction was to the political stuff back then. Or there wasn't the internet for there to be this all-encompassing voice that everybody has. So maybe it would have been the same. I have two things to say in regard to that. So the first is, I wonder how much they can sustain the current event commentary that they're doing now. Because as I mentioned, it was written in 2018 and it's coming out in 2020. And, you know, oh, they're TBD. We don't know who the president is, that whole thing. Mm -hmm. And news moves so fast now and jokes in the collective consciousness cycle through so much quicker than they did in the 90s i mean the the speed in which the focus of the audience switches is dizzying at times and so i wonder if they're writing this a year or two in advance of it coming out how long can they sustain something and and keep it relevant and funny you know because it is hulu right so they're going to have to write it far in advance it's not coming out week to week even if they did it, they would still have to animate it it's going to make itself irrelevant like the whole mm-hmm. kanye west meeting donald trump bit when he swallows the ipad or the tablet oh i was like oh that's old news in a sense it was still funny to me but i wonder how long they can sustain it and the second thing is is that I wonder if this is just a trial run and that maybe in the future it might switch its tone a little bit. Animaniacs were always somewhat caustic. I mean, they weren't the nicest cartoons ever. No, it wasn't Tiny Toons. It was always the more adult one. And Animaniacs did do better. That's the reason why it got canceled, actually, is because it always was more popular with adults and older teens as opposed to kids. And all the sponsors, like, mm-hmm. you know, they couldn't sell advertising space to sponsors who wanted to, you know, for, for a children's show that was popular for adults. They couldn't make the marketing work. Well, yeah, this was before SpongeBob was a thing. And so SpongeBob really set the pace for kind of the hybrid of audiences that it garnered, you know, the, the adult audiences that can catch on to the small little sexual jokes or the political jokes, along with kids who are like, oh, something colorful is dancing on the screen. I'm enjoying this, you know, and that's the other thing is that I wonder if they are fitting their market audience or their primary audience, us, the millennials, 
perfectly in the way that we feel about the world today. You know, we we are somewhat bitter and angry with how things have gone. And so it felt appropriate for our generation. And at the same time, I don't think that this is something that's going to ever be targeted toward. It is much more accepted now for adults, 30-year-olds our age, to enjoy cartoons and to watch it consistently. I mean, you look at F is for Family, Family Guy, all that stuff. That This was all before then. And so I think that the environment has changed as well to allow this to thrive a little bit more. And its ability to make jokes about the current situation that we're all in. I thought it was perfect for me in the way that I feel right now. And yeah, sure, we have tons of comedians that are already doing this. They make fun of Seth Meyers as one of those people. But yeah, what this, an odd bit in the first episode. Yeah, out of all like, people. Why, yeah. why are you making fun of Seth Meyers? What a, what a strange I love Seth Meyers. <laughs> it was really weird. But I didn't mind it. You know, I, I was like, oh, okay. The whole time I'm watching, I'm like, oh, I hope they mention this. I hope that brain somehow becomes Khaleesi mother of dragons and he does and then the whole bit with Leroy Jenkins I mean that's a joke that very few people would get and so it's also taking advantage of these niche memes the fact that they have what was the title of the first pink in the brain episode oh the title I don't remember the title of it, it. was something of memes or oh of mice and of memes. mice and memes yeah and I'm like oh that's pretty brilliant and so you know I didn't mind it as much I definitely agree and saw what you were saying because I, I remember you mentioning it went in a little bit too much of the whole Dan Harmon meta type feeling. That's what I don't like about Rick and Morty now also is it's too much. Yeah. You're thinking that you're being clever by pointing out that you're being meta when it's not, in my opinion. I don't care for it. I'm like, just tell regular stories. It's fine. Yeah. And you can tell regular stories that are referencing other stories, which I I don't mind. Like I, I like the fact that Rick and Morty retold Jurassic Park, but in a homeless man's body. Like, Anatomy Park. Yeah, Anatomy Park. Like that type of stuff is fun to me. But I agree in that there is a point where it can go a little bit too far. And I'm hoping that they are going to find their equilibrium in the second season because I really do hope it gets a second season. I, I'm enjoying it thus far. Mm -hmm. I think also the environment in which the second season is going to come out is going to be much different. I mean, right now, everything's politically skewed. And so it it's almost hard to come out with something that didn't comment on what was happening. To be fair, it would have been strange if they hadn't done some sort of political stuff because that was a big part of the original. Yeah, yeah, right? Like they I remember seeing, you know, politicians in the original and things like that. Even as a young kid, I I recognized mm -hmm. it. And so it, it makes sense that they did, especially nowadays. I mean, it occupies way too much of our minds and hopefully with hopeful new start, it will change where we don't have to be constantly thinking about politics. And so a show like this can actually thrive in making jokes about other things. And the same thing goes for all comedians, you know, and, and all comedy bits. For it to not center around politics is probably something I'm looking forward to. It's funny you mentioned Family Guy because the showrunner for Animaniacs is Wellesley Wilde, who was one of the main writers of Family Guy. And so it's not a surprise that those two tones are probably pretty similar. You want to know what's also interesting? You mentioned Family Guy. You mentioned SpongeBob. Animaniacs went off the air in 1998. Family Guy and SpongeBob premiered in 1999. Yeah, I think they saw an opportunity that was untapped, which is a 
cartoons for adults and that is really something that's it's the same thing with video games as well i mean our generation is the first generation that is going to play video games into their old age right the acceptance of it even when i was at my last job a lot of the leaders were either baby boomers or gen x and Anytime I'd say, oh, I was playing Modern Warfare the night before, I'd be like, oh, you play video games? And it's like, you see the difference in thinking, whereas my colleagues who were millennials were like, oh, yeah, I mean, I was playing this, playing that. And it makes sense that the year after they saw Animaniacs and thought, well, if this is doing well with adults, then why don't we make something explicitly for adults? Mm-hmm. And it worked. You know, it's, it's changed. I wonder how well this did. I want to know, like, yeah, ratings. They're never going to release yeah. them. It's like Netflix. Netflix vaults that up like Fort Knox, unless they have something good, which we'll talk about with Queen's Gambit. And then they're they're real, real ready to be proud like, of that one. Oh yeah, they're like <laughs> half of the world watched Queen's Gambit, and then you go, hey, yeah. what about this other show? And they go, let's not talk about that. But I'd love to know how this did. Just and who watched it? Like who this was for? Because it seems like it was for us, you and me. Our yeah. age bracket. Well, and the fact that it came out on Hulu as well. And the fact I mean, that, yeah, and came out on Hulu. But like our kids, our parents, I should say, putting this on for their kids in the way they would for another, for a cartoon. Like, let's say Tiny Toons came back, right? I think kids Or are... even like DuckTales, which DuckTales yeah. recently came back. DuckTales is very much for children. And I, and I watched it too, and I and I liked it. I enjoyed it. I love the theme song. Talking about good theme songs, you know, they're just going to remake oh, all yeah. the cartoons with good theme songs. But I want to know who actually did watch this. I am wondering that as well, because I have two thoughts on that. Is The first is a lot of the cartoons do infuse in a few little jokes here and there that kids might not catch on to. But a show like Animaniacs, kids are far smarter than they were when they were our age. Like That's We true. were somewhat sheltered, whereas now in the age of TikTok... Kids are so smart now. The generation of WAP watches Animaniacs. They're going to know what is going on. So I wonder... They're going to get that finger prints joke in the original exactly one of the most iconic jokes of that show (laughs) but like as a kid i would have never caught on to that but kids these days would definitely catch on to that and the the internet has changed everything and so again i i wonder how this is going to be received this is such an interesting thing to come out right now and i think it's too new to actually know that yeah yeah i don't think a lot of people know that it even got rebooted i don't think so either you know i think there was a lot of promotion for DuckTales, or at least I remember it was, because that came back and they released the theme song, like with um, a bunch of the the actors singing it. It was a whole big thing. This really didn't have as much of a release, I don't think. When they first started working on it, the announcement was pretty big. I remember us actually talking about Mm -hmm. it briefly. And when you told me, oh, it came out, I was like, oh, I didn't even know it came out. And I drive around on Sunset Boulevard every day. You know, I live in Hollywood. And so I see all the billboards and what is kind of in the true L.A. sphere. And I didn't see anything about Animaniacs. The only time I saw it was like on a an Uber screen that was on top of the car that the guy like bought. <laughs> like, And I was like, oh, yeah, Animaniacs is coming back. You know, like that was the only time I ever saw anything, any mention of it. So. Yeah, it is interesting that they didn't really go hard on the marketing. And that could have a lot to do with COVID as well. Because people aren't out and about as much. So why would they put up billboards and things like that? Like, I've seen billboards that have been up since March when things first started. Because no <laughs> one like, bothered to change it. them. Yeah, but I think it's a, this is a good time to move on. Or do you have something else to say? No, speaking of not going out and surprise releases. <laughs> yeah. Because Kevin Hart's new special also was just basically surprise released on Netflix. I did not know that this was coming. Beyonce dropped it. Boy, did he. And then I read, because I didn't know anything about it. 
I thought it was a bit that he created a stage in his house. Like I thought that was a lie. No, it turns out Kevin Hart for for his new special in these coronavirus times brought people to his home, built a stage in his living room and did a stand-up set just in his house hour long. And then Netflix paid for it. How much did Netflix pay for insurance? Oh yeah. And okay. If someone came in and was sick and then got his family sick, are they paying for their healthcare costs as well? Right. (laughs) Netflix doesn't care about money. They're just like, here you go. More of it. Let's just throw some money at it. It was probably the renovation of Kevin Hart's basement that upped our Netflix costs last month to one dollar more (laughs) (laughs) we're all paying for kevin hart's renovation of his basement we're all paying for kevin hart's weird needy stand-up special (laughs) what did you think of it did you like it i wasn't a big fan i here's the thing i like kevin hart's individual bits but i'm not a big fan of his and i love kevin hart as a person even if i did not enjoy his stand-up i do like him as a person i do think he's funny i just don't enjoy his stand-up as a whole He's like one of really? those comedians that, yeah, I would watch his like YouTube videos of like this one bit, but I won't watch the entire thing in the way that I do John Mulaney, for instance. Like John Mulaney, I've seen his stand up specials from start to finish at least six times each. I was curious how this was going to go because Kevin Hart has a lot of the same energy that Mulaney has and like a Chris Rock had also, mm-hmm. which is very like big, very big on yeah. stage. Not a, a he, he, Kevin Hart is more manic than. Mulaney yeah, more slapstick. Yeah, yeah, or like Chris Rock was. Mulaney's very intentional with the words he uses. Very refined. Very refined. In the same way that Louis C.K. is. Like, he knows which words can elicit a certain reaction and can set up a bit. Whereas I feel like Kevin Hart is very much off the cuff, wacky and zany and loud. Loud is definitely the word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I enjoy that sometimes. But I don't find him as funny as if there's anyone I can compare him to, I would compare him to Cat Williams, for instance, because Cat Williams does have the same energy, but he's hilarious. I enjoy Cat Williams far more than I enjoy Kevin Hart. It's funny you mentioned that because I thought of a comedian that I've never actually seen one of his specials all the way through, but became so popular that he was playing to stadiums. And it was Dane Cook. And I was Mm, curious, and I don't know much about Dan Cook, to be fair, probably because of the perception of who Dan Cook was and and the the stage persona became... He became a rock star at one point. Became a rock star and was very popular, again, to go back to when we were younger, when when we were, you know, 15 years ago in high school. I used to love Dan Cook. I used to watch all this stuff. Did you really? Yeah, so he doesn't it, seem I, like your type. Uh, no, he does. At least when I was younger, like my comedic sense of that. I, I don't know. Like that, that's the thing is, I feel like listening back to Dan Cook's stuff now, I'm like, uh, it's not as funny. You know, it, it was a different time, but right? He, but, but he has that type of energy too that Kevin Hart does. Of yeah, playing to the stadium yeah. more exactly so than exactly an intimate room. John Mulaney could be one-on-one with Seth Meyers in the way that he did recently, where he's just wearing a trench coat and sunglasses and having a conversation and be hilarious with no audience. Whereas I don't think Kevin Hart can play without an audience because he does feed off of his audience. And you felt how awkward it was in the beginning of this special because it almost felt like the audience was still unsure of how to act in such an intimate setting especially after not being around people for so long. And right. Like it felt kind of weird. Like, Oh, like how, how do I human? (laughs) Yeah. It it felt strange having them all sit there on couches, you know, separated socially distanced apart. Yeah. And I wanted to know how big that room was also. Cause it was pretty big. It felt like it went back. Yeah. It felt like it went back a while too, but Mm -hmm. you only got to see maybe the, the first four 
couches, you know, in the special. That's yeah. Those are the only people they really cut to necessarily. It was also it had to have been like fifty people, I think. It at ha- most, it had to have been. How yeah. big could Kevin Hart's living room be? Then again, he's really rich, so. I was going to say, <laughs> don't underestimate the size of Kevin Hart's living room post-renovation. Yeah, right, exactly. Apparently, Netflix had to up its rates for it, so you never know. <laughs> it's also really weird because, and I, I thought about Dave Chappelle also when he came back to Netflix when in a more that, intimate like, setting, too. Yeah, and, that, and like, farm special that he did. Well, kind of all three of them. He did one in the... Oh, 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 way back when. No, not yeah, a couple of years ago. No, not okay. during COVID. No, no, no. This was a couple yeah, of years yeah. ago, or maybe last year. I don't remember. Time doesn't mean anything. No, no, anymore. it was like, it was, yeah, it was two years ago. Two years ago. Yeah. He did those two specials. And have, after Chappelle was gone for so long, having him come back and kind of reflect on his career and celebrity and doing stand up, it felt the same way as Kevin Hart's new special. I like Chappelle more as a stand-up than I do Kevin Hart. I still find Kevin Hart very funny. I like his stand-up. But it's weird to see when you reach a certain level of fame as a stand-up comedian, the material can really only be about how you're famous. Well, yeah, right? They're not having day-to-day conversations. It's the same way as, you know, when Kanye West was making really good music until he became super famous and he had no experiences to draw off of. And so that's something that we've talked about in the past as far as directors as well, is when you have too much of a budget and you're kind of living in the Hollywood world, that's when your art starts to suffer. You know, I forgot which artist it was that used to take a busing job and would like bus at a cafe just to keep himself grounded. What? I've never heard of that. Yeah. I'm trying to remember who it was. And they would literally just work in a cafe to remember what it's like being on the ground level in a sense. Right. And so, but I also think Dave Chappelle has started something that you were starting to see a lot more because Dave Chappelle no longer does comedy. Dave Chappelle is Socrates and Aristotle now. Boy, is he. Dave Chappelle he, just goes up he's there. He's an orator. And just, he can sit on there for two hours and just contemplate the nature of life and people will just exactly. go and watch. I would watch too. It's a very intimate setting and it's interesting to hear someone that we revere just talk about life and his experiences and what's going on currently. I think that him living in, what is it? Ohio. Ohio is in a sense taking a job at a cafe and grounding himself. He's around normal people more often than he is around Hollywood people, which that's also another thing is maybe you shouldn't live in Hollywood or New York, you know, and Mm -hmm. he's not afraid to get a little bit dark and contemplative. Introspective. Introspective. Yeah. And the same thing happened with Patton Oswalt after he lost his wife. Mm. He talked about it on stage. Uh, Aziz Ansari, after his whole Me Too situation, he went on and talked about it. And so we're starting to see something different when it comes to the world of comedy, where it's not so much about laughs as much as it is about just a philosophical conversation that happens to have jokes in it, mm-hmm. you know? So it's it's interesting to see where comedy is going now, especially after the last four years, right? Things have changed a lot, whether it's Black Lives, Me Too, COVID, or the last administration. The world has feels somewhat darker, and maybe it has always been dark, but people are starting to see it a little bit more. And so you can't really walk into a room and do jokes about stupid stuff. You, you kind of have to say something about it. It's the elephant in the room, right? And so seeing how they navigate through that is very interesting to me. How did you feel about Kevin Hart calling... COVID, the vid. I'd never heard anybody call it that before. Whenever I hear somebody 
joke about coronavirus. The Rona. I, the Rona, exactly. Yeah. I, I was caught off guard and he says it a lot in the beginning. He goes, yeah. I got I got the vid. I got the vid yeah. and I'm gonna call it the vid. And I'm sitting there going, Wow, this is this is throwing me. This is strange. No one's ever I wonder said that. If he coined it or shot this before the Rona came out. He had to have. Yeah. Which maybe that's why Kevin Hart's a professional comedian. He goes, Everyone's calling it the Rona, I'm gonna call it the vid. So did you like this? I I don't know. <laughs> Which is the worst thing to say on a show where I'm supposed to give opinions about stuff. No, I mean, it's okay to not know sometimes. Because it's felt like Kevin Hart was both bragging about his life. Desperate is, when you said desperate, I was like, oh, that is actually, it almost felt like he wanted some semblance of normalcy. A little bit. he just bit. made it himself, yeah. And had Netflix pay for it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but also contemplative, just like you were saying, about yeah. his life. Because again, he never mentions it in the special, but kind of work talks his way around it. When he got fired, for lack of a better word, from hosting Canceled, the 2018 yeah. Oscars. Yes, he says, I'm gonna, they can cancel me for what I'm about to say. I don't care. And I'm sitting there going, "You, but you, just because you said they can cancel me, now you're, it gives you permission in your head to say whatever you want now. And it's yeah. kind of like what Animaniacs does. They, you know, they're trying to have their cake <laughs> and eat it too. I'm talking about meta humor. But when you know, there's a lot of bits where he's describing things about his life that should make him seem just like such an arrogant prick. But then he kind of apologizes for it immediately afterwards. Like there's a bit where he's talking about his kids going to, I think it was Disney world, Private, or, oh, yeah. whatever amusement. Oh park. no, it was when they went with their mother. Yeah. They go and they go with yeah. the kids go with their mother to like an amusement park. And he's so famous and rich that he gets to pay for them to cut all the lines, but they have to walk past everybody standing in line and he tells his kids, don't look at those people. Like, just keep uh, your eyes forward. Yeah. And I was also, like, flying private, he talks about that, too. Flying private, too, exactly. Yeah. Like, when they're when the, he, his kids have to go check through actual TSA. And you're sitting there going, I should hate this guy for this. Because you're not allowed to have problems. Because you're super rich, and so you get things like that. But you're not allowed to complain about them. Because you get things that nobody else gets. But he is a talented comedian, and he would come back at the end, and it would be a good bit. And it would make well, me laugh. It's because he's cognizant of it. I guess so. But at the same time, I'm sitting there going, you're trying to trick me. And it's not going to work. But you're also funny. And I don't like that I'm laughing at this. Because I know what you're trying to do. But it is still funny. I think it, it does have a lot to do with the fact that he is upfront and cognizant of it. And is very... Like, he comments on, you know, I know the fact that I'm rich and out of touch. And so what I'm saying now, you probably can't relate to. And I don't mean that in a, like a cocky way. It's just, unfortunately, that's all I know right now. And so I think the fact that he recognizes it and mentions it is imperative for that bit to work. Otherwise, you're sitting there like, oh, I wish I had your problem. Exactly. You know? And at the same time, like, like you're saying, yeah, he does then go into relatable problems of going, well, I'm getting old and I just don't care about anything anymore. And what are my plans doing? Nothing. That's all I want to do. Yeah, and I'm fine yeah. with it. So it, there's a weird relatability to it that he is obviously cognizant about, but then it becomes, and now I'm going to sit in my mansion and not, not do anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I, I mean, when he said, "I feel uncomfortable anywhere but my home," I was like, "Oh, that is how I." It, it and that's what I hear from a lot of friends is like, I got locked out of my apartment for two and a half hours, like two weeks ago, and I was 
paranoid at like I didn't realize how just uncomfortable I am in the outside world now because around every corner could be the Rona <laughs> or the vid <laughs> so I'm just like I want to be back in my safe space just a dude's gonna <laughs> pop out of the corner and like lick you and be like you got the yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> B, it's coronavirus <laughs> so yeah it's you know it's it's interesting there were you know relatable parts about it I didn't laugh really throughout most of the, the- I didn't laugh as much as a lot of his other specials i don't know if that has to do with the setting i don't know if it has to do with the tone or maybe just his earlier specials were more relatable i I don't know probably i thought it was the fact that i'm not a big fan of kevin hart's stand-up i was like okay you know i expected to be somewhat underwhelmed like i wasn't expecting much but it was a little bit less funny than i thought thought it was going to be to the point where i was surprised that people in the room were laughing and if like but they if, put a laugh track if you're gonna you know? bring people during coronavirus times into your house to do stand-up you know that those were the diehards no yeah, one's just yeah. gonna go out and say hey well, they're probably friends honestly maybe like friends and family they, like there's no way he brought in because one if you brought in strangers they know where your house is that's true that's the other thing is there are very much yes men in that room that not not to say that it, you know people wouldn't enjoy this i'm sure people do he's just not my type of comedian yeah he's just he you just don't dig him as much that's okay yeah and that's so much of like that's the problem with any comedy really is that a it ages poorly as Kevin Hart's stand-up will show you. And B, it's so subjective that it's so hard to get that mass appeal, even when you're the biggest comedian in the world like Kevin Hart. Yeah, I can't even say that I thought it was bad as much as I can say that I just didn't like it. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, the, mm-hmm. whatever you find is funny is funny. You know, enjoy it. That's, and, you know what? I'm now thinking through what I just said. Is Kevin Hart the biggest comedian in the world right now? He's probably the biggest comedian in terms of, like, box office draw in movies right yeah, now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, him and him and The Rock. And I wouldn't even say The Rock is necessarily c- comedian. The Rock is not a comedian. Yeah. You no, shut but Kevin your Hart... mouth when you're talking to me. <laughs> well, I don't you know, You shut man. your mouth when you're talking to me. <laughs> the Rock is borderline comedy action. No, but I mean, The, the Rock, you're never going to put... Will Smith. Uh, I wouldn't say Will Smith is a comedian. So, yeah, I, I'm not saying he's a comedian. I was joking, but... Because <laughs> I know you, you look like you're just... But now I'm starting to think, though, Will Smith isn't a comedian, but he has got his big break on a sitcom from a comedy show yeah mm-hmm. that's what i'm saying is is i think there is a certain comedic actor but at the same time he's no he's not, not a comedian he's not a comedian right whereas Patton oswald is an actor but he's a comedian yeah ben stiller is not a comedian but he primarily acts in oh that's right so, so is ben stiller a comedian is, i would call ben stiller a comedian mostly because so much of what he started was is comedy. comedy but so is will smith see this is an interesting conversation to have is is what constitutes as a comedian do they have to do stand-up do they have to write That's yeah because most stand-up yeah, yeah most comedians they're they're doing stand-up they're doing sketch they're doing whatever some sort of you know daily show type show where they're kind of half sketches half just you know yeah. bits or they're right but on ben the show stiller, like you but know. ben stiller did do the ben stiller show which was you know sketches and whatnot is ben what I'm so confused. <laughs> Maybe this is a conversation we should have. Now I need to, because he did Reality Bites, and Reality Bites is, I would, it's more of a drama than anything else, and that was made in 1994. Yeah, it's a drama that is funny at it's, times, No, I would call, right? yeah, or I would call dramedy? Reality Bites, because that's the first thing he directed, I believe, um, which is more of a dramedy. I mean, I don't think in 1994 there was the genre of dramedy that we now know as dramedy. It was probably billed as a comedy in 1994. I don't remember. 
but I think Ben Stiller might be an anomaly because when you think of comedian, I usually will think of stand up. Like Jim Carrey did stand up for a while before he became oh, yes. a comedic actor, right? So he was also on In Living Color as well. So he did both sketch and stand up. Yeah. Rare. You either do one or the other. You know, very rarely do you do you see guys do both. Jim Carrey is a comedian. Yeah, well, in the truest sense, right? Uh, yes. It's it's very different too. Now like, the buckets that you put people in are very, very much muddied. Like television actors and and film actors, it's all the same thing. Yeah, there's no distinction anymore. Like John Hamm is funny. He's not a comedian. No, he's not a comedian. Never, never in yeah. my wildest dreams would I call John Hamm a comedian. John Hamm is, is in the same bucket as The Rock. Yes, in my I agree. opinion. I'm just looking at the cast of Reality Bites now, and you have a bunch of comedians around Ethan Hawke and Winona Ryder. Because you have Steve Zahn and Janina Garofalo. Well, and then Ben Stiller is obviously in the cast. So you have two bona fide comedians of the 90s, Steve Zahn and Janine Garofalo. What is this movie? What an odd, what an odd thing. Because I would definitely put this in the same category as Singles also, which is Cameron Crowe's grunge-based movie, <laughs> Gen X movie. And I would call Singles more of a more of a drama also. Maybe it's a, you know, it's, it's a dramedy, I, I would imagine. Yeah, I know that's... I would call them more comedies than dramas. Like, did you see Manchester by the Sea? I did not. Manchester by the Sea was funnier than you would think it is. What? Really? I didn't see Manchester by the Sea. It is so heavy and it is so depressing. If you're going to go that dark, you have to go so dark that it's funny. Like, there's a moment where they leave the stove on or something or the gas. Like, he didn't fix, like, the gas detector or something like that. And the house burns down and kills the kids or whatever. And so... Yeah, no, it's really dark. And so he's you you don't know why he's kind of messed up and you find that out much later. But while they're trying to get the gurney into the ambulance, it gets caught on the side and they can't get, it is one of the most emotionally draining moments, but they can't get it into the ambulance and it goes on for much longer than you would think that it would. And then you start realizing because you're so caught up in the emotion, you're about to cry. And then you see like, they just can't get this gurney in. And I busted up laughing in the middle of the theater. And the person I went to go see it with looked at me like, you're a crazy person, but it was hilarious. This and is it's very serious, Andrew. And they do that a few times in the film where they find those really dark moments because that is life's, you know, you're not always, yeah. someone slips and falls at a wake, you know, and that's sometimes funny but it is still very dark. And so, I mean, I wouldn't call that a dramedy by any means, but it's very interesting when those two things start to meld. But it's, I mean, Billy Wilder did that the best though. The Apartment is one of my favorite movies and that's a drama with comedic things in it, mm-hmm. which is definitely yeah. what I would call it. Well, and you need it sometimes, right? Because Jack Lemmon is obviously one of the most famous comedians throughout cinema. So you mm-hmm. put somebody like that and I think that's the Jim Carrey effect, right? Jim Carrey, you put him in a drama and he is inherently mm-hmm. going to be Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey. Like he had those moments in Eternal Sunshine, Eternal Sunshine, you know, Truman Show too. Yeah, Jim Carrey comes out. Mm-hmm. That's why I think that comedians are the best at doing drama, because comedians do not play to the camera in the way that, let's say, The Rock does. They're not playing it as a comedy; they're playing it as a drama, and they believe what they're saying, which makes it funny. If you're self-aware that you're in a comedy, then it's going to show. Michael Scott's a perfect example. Is the problems in his life are very real to him mm-hmm. he's really upset about them but it's so funny how seriously he takes himself and so to him he's playing a dramatic role you know it's a dramatic moment but it's funny to us you know 
And that's the crux of Airplane and that style of comedy, too, is playing it all straight. But Airplane is also very self-aware. They know they're making jokes almost. Yeah, uh, but, but Les- like Leslie Nielsen, though, playing it completely straight. Yeah, and that's why he stands out as a good comedian in those situations. But I think we can move on to The Queen's Gambit, yeah? I think so, too. The Queen's Gambit, the new Netflix show, very popular, unexpectedly popular, I think. What a strange thing to also be popular. A show set in the, well, a period piece over a couple of different decades, two decades, about a girl who plays chess. What about it did you know going in? Because I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything either. I just happened to see it on my Netflix, like you say, when they try to stuff it down your throat. That's, oh, yeah. that's when I saw it and that was it. And I was like, oh, this looks really good. And then it started picking up traction and probably at the same rate in which I was watching it, people were like, oh, what is this? And then it got really big. But from the little snippet that they show, I was like, oh, this this looks very interesting. It's right for the times. They had me when they said Scott Frank directed this because I really like Scott Frank. I think he is incredibly underrated as a director. He made a movie called The Lookout in 2007 with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who you love. Uh, it's, a, it's a bank heist movie. Not a lot of people have seen it. He We've also talked about it before. A little bit. I think so. Yeah. I mention it a lot because... Yeah, he did Logan as well and Minority he, Report. He wrote oh, no. He wrote on Minority Report. He wrote that. He also wrote the two best Elmore Leonard adaptations, Get Shorty and Out of Sight. But it's weird because I didn't know anything about this going in other than the the tagline. And I remember seeing the tagline is an orphan young girl becomes a prodigious chess player and, you know, just goes. That's essentially what it was. And if you haven't seen the show or don't know what it's about, I'll read the IMDb summary for you. Orphaned at the tender age of nine, prodigious introvert Beth Harmon discovers and masters the game of chess in the 60s but child stardom comes at a price. Now, I did not know orphaned at the tender age of nine. The show starts with her as an adult woman. And my first thought was, we're really playing fast and loose with the word orphaned. How old do you get to be before you stop being an orphan? You can't be just like a 45-year-old man and so you're smarter than that, man. <laughs> you're smarter than that, bro. Because, you know, I forgot that you <laughs> can like, start a... nine years old. <laughs> she's clearly an adult. <laughs> That's exactly my first thought. Because, you know, I don't remember that you can cut back and forth between time. Because, really, that was it. She's just in a hotel room doing, I think, drinking or doing drugs. I can't remember. And I go, she wow. She had just woken up. She yeah. had. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's not an oh, orphan geez. at all. Not like an orphan to me is like They're a little. Not even trying anymore. No. Netflix is. <laughs> I'm paying a dollar more for this bullshit. <laughs> I mean, I get it if you're like an eight year old Dickensian chimney sweep wandering around <laughs> London, going, "Oh, I'm sorry, Mister. My my parents got kicked in the head by a horse. And would you like I can look up your chimney?" That was a very so terrible a, Cockney yeah, accent, a, by the way. That was my or just orphan in general. Yeah, that's my that's my <laughs> like to my you orphan, orphan is Oliver Twist. That's correct. That is an orphan. Anything less? <laughs> All like, orphans come from London. <laughs> if you're not an eight year old chimney sweep in Dickensian in London, you are not an orphan. I'm you're sorry. Not an orphan. <laughs> Here, here's what we should preface: is we, we've watched the entire series, uh-huh. so it is a limited series. We watched the entire season, um, and then also there's going to be spoilers. We will likely go into spoilers. Do you want to kind of talk about it first before we go into spoilers? It's really, really good. It's shockingly good, and it hooks you from minute one. It's definitely worth a watch. I also think that this is something that it can't be spoiled because it does exactly what you think it's going to do, and it doesn't matter. It's still really enjoyable. Yeah, Christina had actually moved 
further ahead of me because I was working on other stuff. So I would kind of hear it in the background. Oh my and God. I knew, and she cheated. You know, she Netflix cheated on you by watching ahead. Right in, right in front of my face. Right in front of you. <laughs> and so I would see. She didn't know, even moments. watch the show. She just looked at you yeah. as it was on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Stare me dead in the eyes and just kept pressing next on every episode. <laughs> Uh, I'm making her pay the extra dollar. I'm really, you know, obsessed with this whole dollar. You're thing really Netflix. upset about Netflix and this dollar, man. <laughs> I'm actually, I was upset until I found out that they took down Chappelle's show for Dave Chappelle just because he asked. Because he said, hey, man, I'm not getting paid for the residuals. Take it down. I respect that. They're very smart. They knew it was a good PR move, but I also think that they would have been fine in a PR lens if they didn't because they did everything on the up and up. It wasn't even them that screwed him over. No. Also, Netflix doesn't need Chappelle's show. Netflix has everybody anyway. Well, yeah, and they're like, oh, you know, why not continue this relationship with Chappelle and yeah. maybe in the future give him a cut if we do want to end up putting it on. Yeah. But anyway, going back to Queen's Gambit, I had known what was essentially going to happen, but I was still enjoying every minute of it. This is a show that is, you know, once every couple of years, once every decade that you get a show just this solid. A lot of that probably has to do with the fact that it's a limited series. So there's really only so much you can screw up about it. It's also based on a novel. And so that's another thing. And novels, I think, in the world of Netflix, Hulu and all of those novels are now likely going to be adapted in this way because it just makes sense they're too long to condense into a like this could not have been condensed into a film for you to get the full effect in my opinion it could have been the easy sports movie version which would have been and i probably would have liked it and enjoyed it yeah and the, and the writer of the book the queen's gambit also wrote the hustler and mm -hmm. color of money and so, obviously, his work can be condensed and, and then can wrote be condensed well. Drinking gin in Mexico for the rest of his life. <laughs> exactly. But this was worth every minute. It is, in my opinion, rare for a piece of work to have kind of the, I guess, golden ratio, in my opinion, where a story can be both exceedingly intelligent, explores the dark attributes of human nature while also possessing the perfect balance of heart and inspiration. Like a lot of times good character pieces or cerebral stories will forego the optimism and the heartstring moments for a more straightforward kind of dark exploration of the quote unquote human condition. But I'm always pleasantly surprised when storytellers allow for those emotionally satisfying moments and character pieces about addiction and some of the other themes. Oh, yeah. It plays a lot into those themes of the artist. Let's get pretentious about this. The artist yeah, struggle. Yeah, the artist struggle. Yeah. Because Walter Tevis, who wrote it, wrote The Hustler at such a young age and mm -hmm. wrote The Man Who Fell From Earth and then spent the rest of his life trying to kill himself in Mexico with gin. <laughs> Which, funny. Oh, that's interesting. Didn't you didn't know that? Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. But anyway, like for as great as I think that those types of artist struggle films are, they can be emotionally exhausting. But I think it is far more powerful when a story like this depletes you emotionally. Yes, but repays it tenfold. By the end of it, I was still feeling very inspired, and it was just a perfect combination. Again, the golden ratio, in my opinion, of just balance. Because it know? hit those sports movie beats. It really yeah. did in a way yeah. that is. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that in any negative way. It hit all of the sports movie beats that you like in an inspirational Disney's miracle, you know, remember the Titans type of way. And, and, and I'm going to talk about this later, but in a very different world, which I think works. Mm -hmm. I was surprised, but not like the moment when she gets on the phone and all her friends are on the other line toward the end. That's an obvious moment in a sports movie. 
but surprising for this because it was so feel good. Because it I kind of Trojan it, horse that feel good nature into it. Yeah, yeah, I didn't expect this to end well. And mm-hmm. all right, well, let's go into spoilers. I'll put time codes in the description as to when you can skip forward. If you have not finished it, it is worth every second. Definitely check it out. But uh, we'll move on to spoilers for The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. What do you think of Jolene coming back? Because that was the most contrived sports movie part of this. And I didn't care because I liked Jolene. I, I didn't care either. And I think that Jolene grounds her because of her ability to show Beth what she has and momentarily diverts her attention as to what she lacks. Beth, for so long, wanted a mother figure, while all the while, all the women in her life wanted to be like her, even as a child, her own adoptive mother almost wanted to be like her and was promoting her in a sense to do whatever you want. I mean, you are going to do more than I could ever aspire to do. And so it was almost like all the women that she was trying to be like wanted to be like her all the while, which is kind of a, you know, it's a cliche. But at the same time, you know, everyone expected her to be a leader and a role model in chess, yet she never had her own kind of female role model and ended up picking up things from the various women in her life, just searching for that mother figure, like the brilliance of her birth mother to the talent of her adopted mother and the self-destructive nature of both. And then just, you know, the fashion and the makeup from the women on TV, even in the orphanage, Jolene was her influence, mm-hmm. you know, with the pills and then calling Mr. Scheibel a cocksucker. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's this constant mimicry of what she thinks a woman should be. And it all kind of derives from, you know, obviously, from her lack of stability, but the symbolic burning of the dress when she first goes to the orphanage that her mom stitched her name on and said when she gave it to her so that you don't forget who you are. It's like she started without ever knowing who she was and where she came from, in a sense. I really missed Marielle Heller's character, Alma, who plays her adopted mother in the second half of the show, though. Yeah. I, yeah. I really did. When she dies, and literally halfway through at the midpoint, I, I missed that character. I thought that performance was really great. I thought their relationship was really great. She was so She was All so the performances good. were great, but she was so phenomenal and the you know her death spurs on the sort of destructive spiral that beth kind of goes on or is one of the elements i should say doesn't it's not it's not the one thing but yeah but it's the catalyst after a while Mm -hmm. it's rare though to see a show or to see a story told like this to where everybody's really supportive of her the whole time you know they see that she is a prodigy at chess and mr scheibel encourages her, wants to play with her in the orphanage. He brings in the chess teacher who runs the high school chess club. The chess club teacher goes, oh, wow, you're really good. Come on over. Everybody's just really supportive the whole time, which is, I think, a strange choice in that you don't see that very often because this is a story that could have been very dark. You could see the dark turn this story could have taken in episode one. Mm-hmm. Oh, and and I think that that was probably I didn't mind it as no, much I didn't because either. I agree it was surprising, but the conflict lied as elsewhere. Mm-hmm. It, it was for her to lose in a sense, and that the scene that opens the entire show. But later on, when you see, yeah, I think it's the second to last episode when she actually plays Borgoff in Paris, and his reaction to Beth's state when she shows up to the match, it's as if he's disappointed and somewhat disrespected that both of them had obviously been building this match up in their minds for days, weeks, maybe even months. 
and she shows up a wreck and Borgoff is if anything disappointed because he knows he didn't win and that Beth just lost you know it's, it's a testament also to Marcin Dorokinski the the actor who played Borgoff he's really good he's so good his ability as an actor to express so much in his stoicism which can easily become one note and sort of foreboding and the feeling of respect he has toward Beth that he only shows in little moments but also being somewhat let down by her apparent disregard for the weight of the match. As a true competitor, he doesn't want a weak opponent. He wants one that can challenge him and almost give meaning to what he does, you know? And so you see all of that just painted on his face. And he is also supportive almost. Like, he's almost like, girl, what the hell? Like, we were supposed to have a good match, you know? I, you know, I've been practicing for the, imagine, you know? Like, you're, you're practicing all these weeks and it's easy to beat this person. But all done with that very Russian stoicism. It's all in the yeah. eyes. Yeah, exactly. Much like Ivan Drago in Rocky IV, you know, very similar in tone, Rocky IV and The Queen's Gambit. I I think that they shared a line. I believe Borgoff actually says, I must break you to her. I might be misremembering. I don't know. (laughs) In Animaniacs, don't they mention uh, when the dragon's dying? Yeah. And he says, Adrian! (laughs) I think that the reaction of the people as they lost, you know, some of them did get up in kind of a fury, but mm-hmm. just their graciousness, it, they were almost just happy that they got to see someone elevate chess to a new level, you know? Yeah. Every, even as she, as she's moving up the ranks, you know, Harry Melling, who is Dudley Dursley in the Harry Potter movies, mm-hmm. he plays yeah. someone who's a, a blossoming grandmaster and he needs to beat this person. Can I say, uh-huh. could he not play HP Lovecraft? Yeah. Oh boy, who could he? He looks so much like the whole time I'm watching. I'm like, dude, someone's got to write an HP Lovecraft film for you, because he he looks exactly like him. He's a little he bit he's exactly. a little bit rounder in the face. Yeah, Lovecraft yeah, is a little longer... more angular, but yeah, no, I agree with that. He he really could. Yeah, he was so good in this too, especially at the end when he meets Beth again and mm-hmm. he says, "I've been watching you," or "I've I've seen you come to the store a couple of times," and she goes, "Oh, are you spying on me?" He goes, "No, I'm the manager of the supermarket." And she kind of looks down at him. She's like, "Ah, manager of the supermarket. And he goes, you know what? I like being the manager of the supermarket. It's a good job and I like it and I'm good at it. Well, and she at first was like almost sad for him, like her Mm -hmm. actual internal person. But when she felt attacked, that's when she attacked. I don't think that she really believes that. I mean, she's orphaned for God's sake. And she was just trying to hurt him to make him go away. And it's just, it's so sad seeing her in that state. It reminded me of Flight a lot. I mean, obviously any addiction film, but... Flight had those moments. You've seen Flight, right, with uh, Denzel Washington? I saw it once, and I think I saw it on HBO. It was, yeah, I didn't really watch it. I liked it was, Flight. Because Denzel Washington plays a pilot, but he's also an alcoholic, right? And isn't the whole yeah, thing yeah. kind of like a court case about him defending like a flight that went wrong? He inverts the plane yeah. and then lands it upside down, basically saving every or like most of the people that survived. Otherwise, no one would have survived it. But he That's was right. drunk at the time. And I thought it was going to be like about a plane crash type thing. It turns out it was just an addiction story and it kind of Trojan horsed its way into it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is actually really good. And so like that. It... I remember seeing it on HBO or one of those shows. I don't think I ever sat down and watched it. I, I we saw it theaters together. No, that wasn't me. I like that movie a lot, but it looked, it looked flight looked really melodramatic in a way. And you know what? It, it's good that you brought it that was up funny because at times, though. it's kind of an addiction story and that it, again, I haven't seen flight all the way through. I've seen bits and pieces. It felt like it could veer on melodrama in a bad way, in the same way that this could have veered into melodrama in a bad way, but did not. I was worried halfway through this because I, it's just unnerving watching someone spiral. And I'm like, I don't really want to watch this. 
you know, I'm, I'm hoping that things get better for her. But I had no inclination to watch someone spiral. And I think Flight did it well in that they had John Goodman come in and take this really dark story and push it over. Do you remember that? Doesn't he play some sort of hippie guy? Yeah, he's just his hippie friend. And when he wakes up the next morning, he's drunk. His lawyer's like, what the hell? And then John Goodman comes in like the doctor with his little pouch. He opens it up and he pulls out a vial of cocaine. And he's like, do two lines of this, take a swig of this. And it's just like... You'll be golden, man. You get behind that cockpit. uh, John Goodman's great. Anyway, flight aside, this could have gotten very dark, but I thought it was just perfect. Again, it's just... It had enough moments to lift your spirits and to inspire you that it made up for all. Again, it it gave more than it took. If I was going to criticize it a little bit, which there's it's nitpicking, but, you know, Jolene coming back could be seen as contrived. Also, Thomas Brody Sangster's role. um, Jojen. Jojen Reed. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was kind of strange and felt a little off to me. But I think that was also the point of his character that he was, like, you know, he's he's wearing this fedora and he's got this weird he's... pencil mustache. And, you know, I'm sitting there going, but that but mustache looks fake. Did you glue that mustache on? Is this part of the bit? He reminded me of what a nerd thinks cool people look like. He crafted his entire image around Indiana Jones, even though Indiana Jones wasn't cool at the time. You know, that kind <laughs> of thing. Like, out yet. I mean, I, it was just like, you give a nerd too much money and they think that that's what cool looks like. And so he really was kind of trying too hard to be a rock star in chess. That's what it felt like. Yeah, like he even tells the kid when he's giving that interview right before his match with Beth later on in that dinky old school auditorium and he, he's talking to the kid and he goes, you know, most people think that chess players look like you and then he kind of trails yeah. off and walks up and you're like no idiot you would look like him if you weren't trying so hard (laughs) it's as if somebody said to him hey kid you know what's cool hats and he's like oh get me as many hats as you can find we all had that kid in high school that would wear the giant trench coat i mean at least me in california southern california it made no sense they all watched the matrix and then thought i want to look like him i'm going to be cool in high school it is 94 degrees you do not need a trench coat We used to call him Neo because he always looked like, and he would do Neo's moves and stuff. But that's what he reminded me of in this. Look, knock yourself out. I was a nerd as well growing up, but it's just really funny. But Anya Taylor-Joy. It's true. We spent the whole time really not talking about her performance. It's incredible. She was radiant and enthralling. She had this keen ability to express a confident vulnerability, but even her movements, extremely feminine and flowy, yet... They have this kind of sharp, definitive, you know, every time she puts a piece down, it's almost like she's striking the board. And she apparently used to be a ballerina and use a lot of her experience to kind of mm. craft her physical performance, which makes a lot of sense now that you think about mm-hmm. it. I appreciated that it allowed her to be feminine in that world because it helps cement the juxtaposition between her and her counterparts while also being sort of like swift and destructive in the most beautiful way possible. And they're almost like, I can't help but to be in awe and marvel at you. It's rare that you see a person play a role, be so good in it that I can't imagine anyone else play that role. No, it's difficult to picture anybody else in the role now. She owned it and mm-hmm. she was Elizabeth Harmon. No, and this is, if if ever there was a star-making performance, boy, is it this show. I mean, that's a career-making role. And she's going to stay in the 60s because according to her IMDb page, the next thing up on the slate is... Is Mad Max. No, is Last Night in Soho, the new Edgar Wright movie. Oh, really? Yeah. 
which is supposed to come out April 23rd, 2021. But you know, who knows what's going to happen with coronavirus? She's playing Furiosa in the Mad Max spinoff. Young Furiosa, yeah. which I think mm, that's a mistake. Mad Max Fury Road was not her as Furiosa. The idea of a Furiosa prequel, because that movie was so good. Just let it be, man. This is not. This is going to be an Animaniac situation all over again. Just let it. I don't go. know, man. You never know. I just him bringing back Mad Max in and of itself could have easily been that, but the fact that George Miller is directing it, I have hope. That movie was lightning in a bottle. Nothing about I, that movie yeah. should have worked. I usually, and it did. I this usually you're, agree you're with that. tempting fate, George Miller. <laughs> just let Fury Road live in its own amazing bubble. Let me hope. You can hope, man, but. You, you might be disappointed. That's how these things work. Yeah. What is it in uh, Ted Lasso? The, it's the hope that kills you. Ex- yeah. <sighs> we, I mean, Ted Lasso should really sponsor us. We mentioned that show at least once an episode. We are the, the biggest fans of Ted Lasso that I Holster know. Boys for Ted Lasso. <laughs> if Apple wants to give us some money, we'll happily take it. Yeah. Throw us some of that iPad money. <laughs> right. What did you think of the ending? Do you mean like the literal, like last shot when her going, let's play? Because I yeah, thought that was a like... great way to end end a show about addiction is somebody after winning and achieving their goal, right? She she slayed the monster. Mm, she yeah, that's beat, a good way to look at she it. She beat yeah. Borgoth and she still went back to the chessboard to play a guy who could easily beat doesn't matter he's just some random russian dude on the street and yet she still said let's play it almost felt like she was coming home to her beginnings of playing with mr shibel like just the old man in the basement mm-hmm. and it felt like she was around a bunch of mr shibels you know like that moment when they all embrace her and that's the other thing that i was going to talk about that i mentioned earlier is that this show is very indicative of kind of the shifting views of american exceptionalism in film and television if this was made in the 90s this could have easily been borderline propaganda in the way that rocky wasn't but like first man it wasn't about the americans beating the russians to space or the americans beating russians in chess or adhering to the talking points that their liaison gave her but it was merely the ascension of a new queen pun intended in the world of chess and that everyone was just excited that now the bar is set now chess is just interesting to watch again where you had all the old masters and most of the hardened veterans like borgov and the old man with the he almost looked like a conductor (laughs) yeah a little bit he was so cute but like you know they took their defeat with grace and reverence toward beth and i thought that that was just interesting and cool and i also like that they didn't make it about kind of the reds and democracy and all that stuff if anything they were almost thumbing their nose at it while at home someone like jolene can't vote or have kind of an equal shot who are we to criticize the russians at that time you know that kind of thing and so it was interesting the pawns to use a chess phrase both governments were using in these proxy wars didn't give a shit you know that both governments wanted each of them to win so that they can impose their superiority over one another but when she goes down onto the streets of russia the russians didn't say like oh screw you american it was like they welcomed her and and embraced her and i thought that that was just like a great moment at the end especially but they did play the chess matches as if it was uh, like rocky because they're doing the announcing and then the announcer is like oh rook to knight four and then everybody goes and then the runs out yeah and then <laughs> and he's the kid runs out, out and he goes <laughs> What is that from? That's from something else. Uh, I don't. Where the kid runs out and tells the crowd. I do not remember. But they did play it as if yeah. it was just this giant spectacle. It was shot so well, though. It was. 
And like for you to shoot chess in a way that's very interesting is very difficult. I mean, it's just like, and that's why like I think had... this works the best as a limited Netflix series you could, where you can watch them all at once. Because if yeah. this was coming out week to week, I wonder if people would go, "All right, fine, I get it. It's chess. It's yeah. just another chess match." Now it's... she's in Miami. Now she's in Cuba. Now she's in Russia. Whatever. Yeah, it's meant to be binge watched in a sense. Yeah, but even just like the moment where she's playing with Borgoff in the last episode, and she takes her queen and then puts it on another piece, and. It's like a delayed rack focus to the foreground where she puts the new piece, mm -hmm. but it's like the snap rack focus. And I wasn't sure what happened at first. So I rewinded and I looked at it and I was like, oh, that's interesting because it, it gives weight to that move and it shows the shifting of who's kind of in control of the situation. But it's something so simple and they were able to pull it off to where it was very interesting to watch and could have easily been very boring. It looked gorgeous. It was shot beautifully and the performances were spot on. However, uh -oh. did 70 million people really watch this Netflix? Who knows? Apparently you can't get a chessboard anywhere. Yeah, it's strange, right? And well, yeah. when, when coronavirus hit too, and when people went into lockdown the first time, you couldn't buy board games either. You know, everywhere was sold out of board games. You couldn't buy Monopoly, yeah, Uno cards. You couldn't find any Uno cards. There's a black but market. chess, I mean, no one plays chess anymore other than you and I. <laughs> Yeah, right? I've got a bunch of chessboards in my house. Yeah. When she gets her first chessboard, it's like a, a victory. You're like, oh, nice. She got her first chessboard mm -hmm. for herself. It, they just did a good job at building it slowly, and her mother did such a good job. <laughs> Although it was self it was self-interest at first when she goes, oh, I didn't know you could win money playing chess. But again, that I was surprised early on when she told her, she's like, I was wondering if I can get 10% as a managerial fee. And then she says, how about 15%? And the whole time I'm thinking, oh, this is going to go dark. Like, this is where mm -hmm. the, the split happens. The Never Selena did. and her manager thing happened. No, and it didn't. And I was like, that's a really sweet moment. And they didn't care. They just did it. Her mom also, she looks so much like Melissa Villasenor from SNL. She does. I could not get her out of my head. Like, her like, type voice. Her Mickey Mouse <laughs> impersonation and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but she was so good. And I love like when she goes into the hotel room in Russia, she goes, this will do nicely. I just love the nods to her mother. Mm -hmm. And it was so sweet, their relationship. Overall, this, this show was so good. And yeah. it needs to stay this way. And they should never do a sequel ever. I don't think they will. I hope not. I hope not, too. There's no more book to write. This is not a hustler of the color of money scenario. Although I like the color of money. And <laughs> Paul Newman has one of my favorite lines in any movie, in the Hudsucker Proxy, a movie not a lot of people have seen where a guy is trying to jump out of a boardroom window to commit suicide off of like a 90 floor boardroom. And he just, uh, the guy smacks into the window and falls down and Paul Newman just smoking a cigar going, plexiglass installed <laughs> last week. I don't know why I love it so much. If you haven't seen the movie, it's not going to mean anything. That's the Coen Brothers one, it's right? Coen Brothers. Uh -huh. I've been wanting to see that for so long. I need to watch it. Anyway, I think that wraps up this week's watch list, huh? I think so too. As always, we'd love to hear from all of you. Have you watched the Animaniacs reboot on Hulu, Kevin Hart's new stand-up special, or The Queen's Gambit on Netflix? If so, what did you think? Did you agree or disagree with anything we said? As we've mentioned in the past, we are still trying to reach 1,000 subscribers on YouTube to become partners, but our short-term goal by the end of the year is to reach 100 subscribers. Thank you so much to the 20 subscribers we currently have and want to ask a favor of all of you. 
If you're able to share the podcast with just five of your friends, especially if you can get them to subscribe on YouTube, we could reach 100 subscribers by the end of the month. Regardless, thank you all for your support thus far, and we hope you're enjoying the show. If you have any ideas for a theme you'd like us to discuss or a film, TV show, anything pop culture, let us know on YouTube, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find all those links on channel 8andahalf.com. That's channel 8andahalf, completely spelled out, .com. We have new episodes every Thursday. Until next time, my name is Joe Galino. And I'm Andrew Hanna, and this is Channel 8 and a Half.